The New Testament reading is from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello again, everyone. It's great to be with you. I'm in a really happy mood. I've been in the, at the coast for the better part of the week, and the weather was actually great, which was a, a welcome surprise. Um, a little discombobulated driving in just this morning um, and realizing my sermon seemed a whole lot better on Wednesday afternoon than it did this morning. Uh, my son Nick drove while I worked, um, so I'm a little bit concerned about how this is going to go, but I'm just going to trust my notes, and we are, after, a while, after all, talking about grace. So, you know, you got to give it as well. This is our operating principle called growing in grace. Uh, this is number four, right? Uh, number three, sorry. Huh? Four. Thank you, Ben. Number four. It says it right here. Believe it or not, I wrote that in. Nice. Yes. Took me a minute to interpret the IV. Core value four, growing in grace. Jesus freely welcomed broken people and taught that spiritual transformation came through knowing him and living in a gospel-centered community. In-town exists to draw people into the orbit of grace and instruct them in its daily practice. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray, as we do each and every Sunday that we've been looking at these core values, that they wouldn't be things that we just put on the website or pin on the wall, but that we would actually operate our church because of these and through these Father, that we would embody this idea of growing in grace and therefore be a welcoming and warm community because even the leaders here recognize that we are people in process, people with needs, people who need your gospel. And so, Father, I pray that would come through and that you would give us all, wherever we're coming from spiritually this morning, an anchor, something to hold on to, that we would find your grace to be compelling and lovely, and that it would invite us into your very presence. We pray 
in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't uh, fly a ton. I'm not a, a road warrior, but I do get to travel a decent amount. And because my family and our background is on the East Coast and in the South, I, when I fly, I generally fly across the country. So the miles accumulate. I have a Sky Miles card. And so over time, these miles accumulate, and I begin to feel pretty good about myself. Look what I've accomplished in this metal tube. And, but the problem is, is I hate, I hate using Sky Miles because I have this great anxiety that I'm going to lose some kind of hidden status that those miles connect to, that when I call customer service, it's not going to be, hello, Mr. Prentice, how can we help you? But it's going to be, oh, it's you. That kind of hidden status that perhaps you lose when you, you know, you charge some of those miles. I'm a bit neurotic about it. And I read this great article last year in the New, York, New Yorker that talked about this sort of anxiety called the madness of airline elite status. And he talks particularly about the United program, Global Services. And unlike many of the programs where you just fly a mile and you get a mile, there's a big mystery that keeps people guessing and keeps all of these road warriors trying to figure out how do we get, how do we achieve, how do we keep global services. And the writer says, the diabolical marketing genius of global services is that, as St. Paul said of grace, it cannot be earned by works. It is a gift. And God, in this case, is an algorithm of United Airlines. But the gift of getting global services can cause anxiety in frequent flyers as they try to work and try to please this enigmatic master. And because they don't have any posted guidelines on how you achieve it, there's all these message boards that are filled with speculation about why certain travelers receive it and why others don't. don't. Is it a measure of uh, segments flown? Is it just mileage? Is it dollars spent? Is United watching through some cameras on the airplanes? And he says to know, perhaps they notice you wiping Dorito dust off your fingers on the armrests, and so therefore you don't get it this year. And it's so typical of human beings, he says, to turn a gift into something to be curated and controlled. The psychological term for this is the endowment effect. It's what I talked about, that we hate giving up a status that we have achieved, something that we already have. And we can use virtually anything to soothe our status anxiety and to hold leverage to elevate ourselves over others. Whenever I've been fortunate enough to be upgraded or whenever I've paid a little bit more for a little bit extra seat, whenever I've gotten some kind of status in traveling, I am a little bit too proud of it. And I grab my bag in the boarding area and I put it over my back and I walk towards the gate feeling very proud of myself and looking over my shoulder at all the chumps that are boarding in zone three. Maybe if they tried a little bit harder Global services maintenance anxiety disorder arises because there's something about being a part of an elite club, having a bit of a higher status than all the other people that are traveling, achieving a sort of recognized traveling excellence that makes spending so much time in an airplane a little bit more tolerable. But this consolation can quickly become thought of as an earned status. I want to look first of all at the disturbance of grace in this passage and how it disrupts this sort of identity maintenance. 
the disturbance of grace, first of all. Verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy, Holy Spirit. And what I want you to see here, first of all, is that this is not a vague spirituality. This is not just a universal force, and it's not a God whose desires are capricious or ambiguous, but it's a personal creator God who has come among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Becoming a Christian, you see, isn't just adopting a new belief system. It's not taking up a new practice of spirituality, but you are included, you are brought into God, the very life of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this would have been completely unsettling to all of those who were reading at this time, whether they were monotheistic Jews or whether they were pagan Greeks. Both would have just bristled at this idea. For the monotheistic Jews, they would be remembering Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord is God. God the Father rules from heaven, and He is one. And yet, yet here comes this upstart rabbi who sort of challenges and confirms this at the same time. He believes Deuteronomy, and yet he says that he is God in the flesh, that he walks and talks with humanity. He heals them. He touches them. He forgives them. That God who dwells in power comes down, no longer in fire and in smoke, no longer in terrifying power, but he comes in this gentle teacher, the gentle, gentle human person of Jesus who doesn't perform sacrifices, but he himself is the sacrifice. And in one sense, it's the logical extension to everything that had been taught in the Hebrew Bible, but at the same time, it challenges them at their core. But this is written to Ephesus, and so while there may have been Jewish people reading, there was a Jewish author after all, it's probably written to people who were polytheistic, pagans as we might say. And Paul says Jesus to them is not simply a son of God like Artemis or Apollo. He's not one God among many, but he says Jesus comes as the God. In the pagan stories that were circulating around the Mediterranean basis at that time, the deities were not to be disturbed. The flood stories that were circulating were about God coming down to deal with his people that were being too loud, and they were disturbing God's peace, and so he flooded the world because they were too noisy. But here, God is not responding to a disturbance, but he's in fact creating it. He's bringing disturbing disturbance. He's disturbing everyone's presuppositions about who God is and what God is like. Even for Paul, he was disturbed by this. But as he opened his mind, as he allowed his preconceptions to be challenged, as he looked at contrary evidence, he saw that this disturbance, which challenged him at his core, was actually good news. It was actually gospel because God 
is not someone who doesn't want to be disturbed, but God comes and is with humanity. And He is with us in grace, and He is with us in love. God reveals Himself as a rescuing, redeeming, saving God who doesn't throw down lightning bolts or mount a war horse, but He mounts a cross because He loves humanity so much. There's, first of all, the disturbance of grace, but then we see that there's an unimaginable depth of grace. We see in verse 3, praise or blessed be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, blessing has become sort of tribal language in the church and As I grew up in the South, we used to joke that you could say just about anything about anyone as long as you said, bless his heart, afterwards. So you could say, you know, he's dumb as a box of hammers. Bless his heart. But blessing is not tribal language. Blessing is life in all of its fullness, in all of its flourishing. And when you bless God, you are recognizing that he is the ultimate source of flourishing. He is the ultimate source of of fullness. But here it's not just about blessing God, but in fact God chooses to bless his people. He blesses us, Paul says, in hev- in the heavenly places. What he means here is that all the spiritual resources that God has that reside in heaven that are present to and are available and present for us to flourish, they are leveraged for our benefit. Jesus said, I have come to bring them life and to bring it to them in the full. And then verse 4 and 5, he chose us in Christ before. He predestined us for adoption. Now, don't overthink this because lots of people have overthought this this passage from a perspective of sovereignty and have come up with a very elaborate system that has some like meticulous sovereignty and control basically to tell who is in and who is out. And that's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. What he is talking about is he is using language of how people fall in love with one another. God is telling them their story. God is reminding them of their past and their relationship with them. It's like he's on an anniversary date with them and he's saying, do you remember when we met? Do you remember when I first told you that I loved you? Do you remember when you walked down the aisle and you saw me and I saw you? Do you remember that spark? Do you remember what that felt like? That's what he's conveying. He is saying, before I did anything, I chose you. Do you know when I fell in love with you? Before the foundation of the world, before time began. That's what he's telling you on this anniversary date. Would you remember that? He's speaking very personally. He's not solving theological riddles, but he's writing a love letter. All of us have probably had the opposite experience, right, of not being chosen. Not being chosen by the in crowd or the playground or varsity sports sports team not being chosen for the homecoming court, not being chosen to get into the school that we wanted to get into, or maybe we were chosen last, or maybe we felt like we just got in. 
And not being chosen carries this message far beyond not being chosen in that one particular area. But we begin to totalize this being passed over, and we begin to reason that we ourselves are not worthy. We're unloved. We're not useful. And most of us don't take this lying down. We're going to do something about it. And so we find a tribe that will accept us, and we make a deal, this quid pro quo. For somebody's acceptance, we'll do this. We will play by the rules. We'll be a good member. We'll adopt their style. We'll adopt their speaking. We'll adopt their vocabulary. We'll adopt their political perspective. And now we're chosen. And this group begins to become for us far too large of an identity, part of our identity. But really, we're just being allowed to come in. We're not being chosen. We're not being preferenced. And this is a very tenuous way to live. Or maybe we take the opposite approach. and We take on the role of the rebel, the bully. We push against boundaries and we push against people. We become sort of a jerk, insisting on getting our way, insisting on being noticed, even if the recognition isn't all that positive. And it's against this background and these tendencies, which really is the the human condition, that Paul is telling you that if you are in him, you have been lovingly chosen. In him, you have eternal acceptance and eternal welcome. But there's this unfathomable depth to God's love, which you can receive this depth of grace that was established for you before time began. So, out of that depth of grace, when time came, Jesus laid down his life so that you can be included, so that you can be welcomed. Grace, uh, verse 7, actually says that he spilt blood for you. And we sang about this in one of the songs. And it sounds a bit strange to our ears, maybe even a little bit creepy. Why blood? Well, Paul is speaking as a Jew here, and he's referencing this long and complicated story of the redemption of sin through blood sacrifice, and he's connecting that sacrifice to the death of Jesus. And we don't have time to explore that fully, but essentially what he is saying is that we all have a problem that won't be solved just by spiritual technique that won't be solved just by a few incantations or incense or meditation. All of these things can help that process. But the crux of what Paul is saying when he says that Jesus spilt blood for you is that you are a person and I am a person despite all of your flaws and all of your scars and all of the ways that you've been wronged and have wronged others, all the ways that you've been overlooked, that God doesn't Declare his love for you in the abstract. But then in all your beauty and all of your ugliness, he chose to value you enough that he would send his son to die. That's where blood comes in. It's this very visceral and visual depiction of the cost of salvation. Blood is representative of life itself. You can't live without it. In the military, if you're in a conflict zone, 
Many of them will write their blood type with a Sharpie in various places on their body. Therefore, if they get injured, they don't have to ask what blood type they are because you don't want to put different kinds of blood. Some of them don't mix very well. And so it's very helpful to be able to to identify an injured person's blood type. The people that give that blood give a, a little bit of a sacrifice. They give time and they give maybe a little bit of pain to provide a source of life for those people on the field. But here what we see Paul is saying is that the God who has every right to demand blood, to demand our lives, instead gives his blood, gives up his life so that you can have and I can have the life-saving blood that we need. And if you're one of us, if you're lost in the cosmos like most of us are, this blood is just our type. It is what we need. Wherever you're coming from this morning, if you're seeking, if you're exploring, if you're asking questions, if you have big objections about Christianity, what if it were true? What if this was a true picture of the God of the universe, that He cares for you and He comes not first making demands, but He comes offering His life? There's the disturbance of grace, and then there's the depth of grace. And then finally, we want to look at the demands of grace. That sounds a bit like an oxymoron. How can grace demand anything of us? But verse 12 tells us that you are blessed, you're chosen, you're destined, you're lavished with grace so that, so that we who already hoped in Christ might live to the praise of His glory. The educational system in the U.S. really majors on facts and figures and details and definitions and mechanics, and teachers often complain that they have to teach to the test rather than teaching wisdom and teaching how to live. And Christian education is often not that dissimilar. It's learning facts, and what's important is what you know, what you put into your noggin. You major on the cognitive, and many churches can become little more than just delivery systems for doctrine. But Paul, even though he's known as the systematic theologian of the New Testament, he never just gives us bare theological data, not just facts. He never tells us just interesting things or abstract curiosities. He tells us, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you what He's like. Let me tell you what He thinks about. Let me tell you how He meditates upon you. Let me tell you how much He loves you so that so that you may live, so that you may live to the praise of His glory. And this sort of living is not doing more. It's not being more busy. It's not doing better. But it's simply resting, and it's simply receiving. All of the active verbs in this passage are about God and what He does on your behalf. The demands of grace are really that you stop trying to solve life on your own. The demands of grace are that you rest in Him as a daily practice. That you learn to stop looking at yourself. That you learn to stop constantly evaluating yourself and therefore evaluating others. That you learn to stop oscillating between pride on your good days and utter despair on your bad days, or maybe hours, 
And when grace begins to take root, when you begin to grow in grace, when it begins to displace your ego, you'll have this enormous gift to give to others. Marsha Linehan is a professor at UW, and she is a professor of psychology, but also she is a therapist, and she's the creator of a treatment that's been used to treat severely suicidal people for a number of years. And this course and this curriculum came out of her own uh, temptation with suicide and her own self-mutilation and what was really self-hatred. And one of her patients noticed the faded burns on her arms as her uh, cuff would come up just a little bit and noticed the scars from the times that she had cut herself. And she, like many of other, her, her other patients, wanted to know her story. And she always had a ready answer to kind of deflect so that she could get back into the therapy. And it was to cut the question short, you mean, have I suffered? And then she would say yes, and they would move on. But this particular patient said, no, Marcia, I'm not asking simply if you've suffered. I mean, are you one of us? Are you like us? Because if you were, it would give us all so much hope. The failure and the scars and the sin that marks you, you can obsess over it or it can also make you tender. It can make you warm. It can make you approachable. Like Marsha Linehan, your story can make you someone who others go to for help and go to for healing because you are marked as a fellow traveler who's also in need of grace. You can say that you have scars just like everyone else, but they don't define you because grace is doing a work of healing. And that's why people go to see Marsha because she's not stuck where she was, but She's begun to heal, and she has something to offer. Now, remember as we close here that Paul is writing to a church, not just individuals. He's writing to the gathering of those who have found grace at Ephesus. And so I guess as we reflect upon our core value, what if in town was growing in grace in such a way that this community became and was a healing place that where people touched the edges of in town, they thought, these people are like me. These people are fellow travelers. They get me. And they have hope because they notice that it's not just the scars, it's not just the brokenness, but there's something else at work, that people are healing, that people are granting grace to others. If you've suffered then you're more sympathetic to grief and to brokenness. But you're learning to walk again. And that's our task as we think about growing in grace. It's learning to take a step forward. The church is a place of hope because Jesus has scars. Jesus has wounds. He became one of us so that he could bring us grace. And now our task is that we are to take it to others. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would enable us to see our own brokenness to the extent that we look to you for grace, 
that we, we reach out to you for mercy and ultimately for healing, that you would establish us again in hope. And Father, that this church would be a place that offers a safe seat for everyone, everyone's scars, everyone's doubts, everyone's disbeliefs, everyone's brokenness is welcome to come and to receive healing here. We pray that we would do that this morning. We would do that beyond in the time to come. In Jesus' name, amen.